Well, hey, good morning. Good to see y'all. Well, today, uh, Christians all over the world uh, are gathering uh, together in uh, churches and in open fields, in uh, caves and, and in tents and basements and on rooftops in houses and in cathedrals. They're all gathering together for the very same reason. Because He is risen. Like that's why we're here. That's why we're gathering uh, almost 2,000 years since the, the events of that first Easter weekend uh, because He is risen. Like Easter is the high holy day of Christianity. And we celebrate it each year and it's a celebration of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like Jesus Christ was dead, fully dead, when they laid Him in that tomb. And He was fully alive when He stepped out of that tomb under His own power three days later on that first Easter Sunday morning. And so we need to understand, guys, that the resurrection of Christ isn't something, something that we simply believe as if it's a, it's simply a matter of faith or emotion of hoping against hope. Like the resurrection of Christ isn't simply something we believe. The resurrection of Christ is something that happened in real time and space in history. Like Easter is the celebration of something that happened. Like it's the celebration of an actual historical event. Like I cannot stress that enough because churches will fill with people who are gathering who have no thought of the actual physical, bodily, historical, real resurrection of Christ. It's enough for them that Christ is risen in their hearts. Guys, that's not what we're celebrating this morning. We're celebrating that Jesus was dead when they placed Him in the tomb and fully alive when He walked out under His own strength three days later. Like it's the celebration of that. That's what Easter is. The heart of the first message to the church, the first message to the community around Jerusalem by the early church was that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, dead, and buried and then He's risen from the dead and we are eyewitnesses of that fact. In fact, that's the very message of the very first sermon of the new church preached by the Apostle Peter just a few days after the events that he's talking about. And Peter explained it this way in Acts chapter 2. He said, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through Him as you yourselves know. Like, like He's preaching to a vast audience of thousands. Thousands of pilgrims who were there for the holy days in Jerusalem. And they were witnesses, eyewitnesses of the ministry of Jesus and of His death. He says, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. God was doing something, but so were you, because He says, and you, with the help of wicked men, 
put him to death by nailing him to the cross. If the Romans knew how to do anything, it was no how to how to kill someone. Like Jesus was fully dead when they took him off the cross. But verse 24, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. It was impossible for the author of life to be held in the grip of death. And so Peter concludes his message with this bold assertion. And it was a bold assertion because he is again talking to people who were there. Like they saw it. They saw Jesus hanging on that cross just a few days earlier between those two criminals. He concludes, God has raised Jesus from uh, Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the, this fact. Like we're eyewitnesses. We've seen it. And of course, this is an absurd claim, right? I mean, Jesus, historically, would have been a no one, a nobody. After his death, he would have been long forgotten, just like the thieves hanging on either side of him. And yet, nearly 2,000 years later, since that sermon, the church of Christ still exists throughout the nations, all over the globe. I mean, it's a crazy message. Not just for today, but it was a crazy message back then. I mean, just remember the, for you who are Bible people and Bible have, have a little knowledge of the New Testament, just, just remember the dismissiveness of the Greek philosophers and the disdain in which they treated Paul when he gets up on Mars Hill and he preaches this message. Like when he references the resurrection, they begin to mock him and think he's just a fool. He's just a babbler. I mean, think of the incredulity of Festus, that Roman proconsul, who when Paul preaches to him and references the resurrection, his response is, Paul, you are crazy. People don't rise from the dead. Quit making stuff up. And of course, it makes sense that any time the resurrection was shared, that it always was met with skepticism. I mean, after all, it was something that even the disciples had a hard time swallowing. Like the Gospel writers make it very clear that no one, none of the disciples believed beforehand that Jesus would rise. I mean, it's crazy because they should have. Like after all His miracles, after all that He had done, after everything that He had taught them, the fact that he had said repeatedly again and again, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles by the Jewish leaders. They're going to crucify me. But on the third day, I'll rise again. And yet none of the disciples, the, the Gospels make it clear to their shame that none of these disciples believed beforehand that it would actually happened and here's the proof there was no tailgate party right like if they had believed it you would think there'd be a tailgate party of excited disciples at the tomb of Jesus waiting like excitedly for the stone to be rolled away on that Sunday morning and yet 
There was no tailgate party. I mean, they should have been sitting there in their lawn chairs with their Yeti beside them, telling jokes, having a blast. But no. In fact, the disciples all hung their heads and admitted that at least at first they didn't even believe the reports that he had been raised. It's just the emotionalism of women like Mary Magdalene who saw him at the tomb. Certainly it didn't really happen because they had all lost their faith. Like their response to the crucifixion of Jesus was absolute cowardice. They all ran. They all fled. They were all deniers. But then, guys, something happened. As they put it in their own words, God has raised Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact. So understand, they didn't just believe something. They saw something. And that something is what we're celebrating today. That someone is what we are celebrating today. The resurrection of Jesus Christ forever shifted the conversation about God and about theology from the realm of the philosophical and the theoretical to the realm of the actual and the historical. Like the conversation has forever shifted to the claims made by Jesus and the evidence, the proof of those claims was this event. And to say that the central event of Christianity is the resurrection of Christ would not be an overstatement. Like the events that happened on the weekend of April 3rd through 5th of 33 A.D., are the central event of the entire Bible. Like they are the axis on which the entire biblical narrative rotates. Without the resurrection, hear this, without the resurrection, there is no church. Without the resurrection, there is no New Testament. And without the resurrection, there is no true hope of forgiveness. In fact, that's exactly what Paul tells the church of Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 14, he tells them, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. What a slam. Right? But he's just saying, listen, if Christ isn't truly raised from the dead, like what am I talking about? What am I giving my life to? What a waste. You want to talk about waste? What are you doing here? Like if Christ isn't raised from the dead, your faith is useless. In fact, he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. It doesn't do anything because you're still in your sins. If Christ isn't raised, there's no hope of forgiveness. Like nothing has changed. If Christ isn't raised, sleep in on Sunday morning. Right? Go on a vacation over Easter. Like if Christ isn't raised, why in the world would you even be here? Like Paul knows what's at stake. 
Like he knows what we have writing on this event, but then he tells the church, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And then he calls him the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Like that's Paul's way of saying, listen, I know because you've written to me, I know that you have concerns about your loved ones, your relatives who have died since they embraced the gospel. And you're wondering like, did they miss out? Is there any hope for them? Understand this, because Christ has been raised, they will be raised. Like He's the first fruits. He's the promissory note from God because He lives as Jesus said Himself to His troubled disciples in John 14. Because He lives, you will live also. And so Paul the skeptic, Paul the persecutor of the early church, had become the chief evangelist of Christianity. Why? Once again, because Jesus was fully alive when He stepped out of that tomb on April 5th of 33 AD. The resurrection of Christ changes everything. It changes everything. I love how Tim Keller uh, pastor and author kind of explains it. He says that whenever anyone comes to him and says, hey, I like your preaching. I like some of the principles that you're teaching, but some of them I'm not a big fan of. Like they'll put it this way. I really struggle with this teaching of Christianity, with this aspect of Christian theology. I mean, I like this part of Christian belief, but I don't think I can accept this part. And so he says he will typically respond to them this way. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept everything he said. But if he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything he said? Like that's his way of saying, hey, if you don't, if Jesus rose from the dead, you don't get a vote. Like voting is over. If Jesus has risen from the dead, hey, you can have your opinion, but your opinion is just a whisper and His is thunder. But if Jesus isn't raised, sleep in next Sunday. Hold on to your 10%. Right? Don't, don't ever sacrifice for something that means nothing. That would be crazy. So the issue on which everything hinges is not whether or not you like the message, but whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. Like that's how the first hearers felt when they heard reports about the resurrection. Like they knew that if this is true, everything changes. If this is true, it meant we can't live our lives <laughs> any way we want to anymore. If Jesus is raised, I can't call the shots about my own life anymore. It also meant that if Jesus is raised, we don't have to fear death anymore. We don't have to fear judgment anymore. We don't have to think, man, when I get, get the before God, I, I hope that He lets me in. That would have been settled 
once and for all by what Jesus accomplished. If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. The resurrection of Christ changes everything. And because of that, Christianity just really has one message. One foundational message. Paul puts it this way. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. As Christians, we stand on the gospel. Like we stand on the message of the gospel as our authority for life. We stand on the message of the gospel as our authority about eternity. Like you could sit in a coffee house and have a debate with somebody who doesn't believe the gospel and they could tell you that they know they're going to be right with God or at least hope they will be because they're good and they're moral and they've done all the things, they're checking all the boxes. And that's fine. And then you can come back and say, uh, because He lives, I will live also. Because Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose again and paid the penalty for my sin. I don't have to check boxes. Jesus checked them all. Like Jesus is the authority for us regarding eternal life because of the resurrection. That's the gospel. What is the gospel? What is this message of good news? He says in verse 3, For I re- what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. Like Paul considers this message of first importance. That doesn't simply mean in like first in a sequence. Like, hey, when I showed up at Corinth, the first thing I said was the gospel. Certainly he did that. Like he tells us in chapter one of first Corinthians that like, like I decided not to know anything else among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was my message. So certainly he did that. It was first in order of sequence. But what he's speaking about is first in order of priority. Like first, like a foundation for a building is first. Like if you don't lay the foundation, you can't build anything that will ultimately last. And in the same way, the gospel is so central, so key. It is the doctrine of doctrines. That if you don't have the gospel... I mean, what are you doing here? If you don't have the death and resurrection of Christ, what are you doing here? Without it, you can't build anything that lasts. Like some doctrines are simply more important than other doctrines. I mean, we can argue and talk forever about you know, what the six days of creation actually mean. Were they 24-hour days? Were they ages? Whatever. We can talk forever about the return of Christ. Is it coming pre or post or mid? What is the millennial kingdom actually like? We can have those debates and they can be really, really fun. But if you don't have the foundation of the gospel to build them on, what an absolute waste of your time. Like the gospel is of first importance. What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And here it is. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. 
After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And so Paul starts off in this message of first importance as he says, for what I received, I passed on to you. So from whom did Paul receive the, this gospel content? Now, like I've been studying just this verse this week a lot, and I, I got to admit, I could completely nerd out just on this verse. I mean, I'm going to fight that. I'm going to fight the urge to do that just for the sake of time. But, you know, I, I love history. And I love apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. And there's been a lot of revisionist history out there that says that the things that we believe about Jesus were developed actually hundreds of years after His life and His death. Like that the church invented Jesus so that they could have somebody to, you know, be the like welcoming committee to fill their coffers and gain money and power and whatever. And yet right here, Paul says, writing in 55 AD, that what I received, I passed on to you. Like that point, that word received refers to an established tradition passed on personally and almost certainly by word of mouth from the first eyewitnesses of this event. Like it's a, it's a, it points to an oral tradition that is communicated by word of mouth from one person to the next, and it started with the people who were the eyewitnesses. So Paul is probably referring to like his visit to Jerusalem in Galatians chapter 1, that was just three years after his conversion. So two years after the resurrection, Paul becomes a Christian. Three years after that, he goes before the apostles for the first time. So five years after the resurrection, he says that after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas or Peter. And I stayed with him for 15 days. Now the word get to know is the word historio. In Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, New Testament scholar Craig Bloomberg says about this one word, hysterio. He says, the word indicates that he didn't just casually shoot the breeze with Peter and the apostles. Like he didn't just show up in Jerusalem so he could hang out with these guys and get to know him. Instead, that word means like more of an investigation an inquiry, like he wanted to know what he was teaching was right. That matches the facts of what actually happened. And then in addition, the way Paul captures like the, the gospel here is considered by most scholars to be a creedal form. And that what that means is that what Paul is communicating is a first century New Testament creed that everyone learned and recited. And that's a big deal because it means that within five years of Jesus, that the first church already had an official creed that communicated the heart of the gospel, the things that were of first importance. And what is the gospel content? 
that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared like to Peter, to the twelve, to the five hundred. Like it's a four-line creed in the original here, and it's the first line is the crucifixion, the second is the burial, the third is the resurrection, and the fourth is Jesus' appearances. In fact, the creed lays out both the facts of the Gospel and the evidence for the Gospel. That's the kind of form that it's laid out in. Like the facts of the Gospel are that Christ died for sins and that Christ was raised from the dead on the third day. Those are the facts. That Jesus died on purpose. Not simply as a martyr, not as an accident, not as a tragedy. Jesus died for our sins. And that He was raised on the third day. And the evidence for His death is first, the testimony of the Scriptures. And then second, the fact that He was buried. Like Paul communicates that as evidence. Listen, you don't bury people who are alive. And if you do, you're a monster. Okay, Jesus was dead when they placed Him in the tomb. And the evidence for the resurrection, once again, is the testimony of the Scriptures and the fact that He was seen by hundreds of eyewitnesses. Many of who are still alive. So it's like Paul is daring the skeptic in Corinth. If you don't believe this, hop on a boat and go to Jerusalem and meet some of these people. You'll have a chance to talk to them. They're still there. They're still alive. They'll point out all the sites. That's where He hung on the cross. This is where He was buried. Like this is where I saw Him for the first time after the resurrection. The evidence for the resurrection is the testimony of Scriptures and the fact that He was seen by eyewitnesses. And so understand that when Paul was writing this letter to the church in Corinth, it's about 55 A.D. In 55 A.D., the first biography of the life of Jesus, Gospel, has yet to be fully completed. Like Mark wrote the Gospel, his Gospel account, with Peter's input in the mid to late 50s A.D. Matthew and Luke followed him in the mid to late 60s where they wrote their Gospels. And then finally, John brought up the rear from about 70 to about 95. He wrote the Gospel of John, filling any gaps in from the Gospels he had already read. And so Paul, when he says, according to the Scriptures, he can't be talking about the Gospels. In fact, he can't be talking about any New Testament writing, the only New Testament letters are the ones he's already written or the book of James, which doesn't have any of this content in it spelled out like this. And so what is he talking about when he says according to the Scriptures? He's talking about the Hebrew Scriptures. What we would call the Old Testament. In fact, after his resurrection, Jesus told some of his followers in Luke 24, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, which is just shorthand for the whole of the Old Testament. 
So according to what scriptures? According to the entire Old Testament. And then Jesus teaches a little Bible study to his followers. It says, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. Like here is the gist of all the Old Testament prophecies about Messiah. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Like Jesus, when he had a chance to open up the Hebrew Scriptures and explain it to his disciples, he says, let me explain what everything is pointing to. The Messiah will suffer. He will die. And on the third day, he will rise again from the dead, which is exactly what Paul tells the Corinthian church. You know, this week, uh, <clears throat> Amy and I got to watch our two of our grandkids spend the night at their house on Thursday, and we're talking to them about this coming Thursday, uh, this coming Sunday. It's Easter. It's a big deal. Do you know what Easter is? And they just kind of looked at us like, uh, no, but I guess you're going to tell me. And so we told them, right? This is what Easter is. And so I'm explaining to them. I'm trying to explain like to my grandson, who's almost four, this little toddler, about the resurrection. And I'm fumbling all over myself. It's not going well. I'm thinking, I'm a preacher. I should be better at this. But he's four. And so it's so hard. I mean, certainly he's excited as I'm telling him. But he'd be excited about anything. If I could count to 12, he's going to be amazed. There are numbers past 10. Like he's astonished. And so he was excited as we told him, but he didn't experience True amazement. And it's not because he's too young to understand spiritual things. It's because he's too young to really grasp earthly things. Like he doesn't understand the finality of death. Like he doesn't understand that once you're dead, you're dead. Like he's never experienced that. He's never had anybody he knew who died. And even if he did, he still wouldn't get it. We'd tell him things like they've gone on a long trip. Right? Well, Jesus went on a long trip, guys. But he immediately came back. And so we're trying to communicate this to our grandkids. And I just thought, you know, this is what they learn at school because they both go to my wife and Lindsay's school, Solid Foundation Preschool. And one of the things that they teach their children there, all of these kids coming from various backgrounds, Christian backgrounds, non-Christian, different religious faith, all of those children learn and memorize the content of the Gospel this way. Jesus came as a baby. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for my sins. And then three days later, He rose again from the dead. Guys, that is the Gospel. And why do they teach that to every kid in that school? Because the Gospel changes everything. I mean, the Gospel changes everything. The Gospel is the reason why you're here this morning. I mean, it means like the Gospel changes everything. It means that death has been defeated once and for all. Like this week, I'd heard in the news that there was a couple of states on the East Coast that reinstituted indoor mask mandates. And I thought, you know, I mean, there's a lot to be concerned, and I understand that. I don't need to make light of that. But, you know, it's been two years now of two weeks to slow the spread. It's been a while, right? And so when I read that news, I thought, 
Like, do these people know something that I don't know? But this is what I concluded. This is what I concluded with a lot of the stuff that's gone on within our world in the last two years. It's not because they know something that we don't know. It's because they fear something that we don't have to fear. I mean, the way the world has responded to COVID in just sheer terror shows me that their hope is here and now. Like, this is all they have. And guys, if this is all you have, double mask. Don't go in public. Hold on tight to this life because it's all you have. Because the Gospel changes everything, it means that Satan has been disarmed. Victory has been guaranteed. Salvation has been purchased once and for all. What the law could not do, weakened as it is by our flesh, God did by sending His Son in the flesh to be the punishment for our sin. Guys, the Gospel changes everything, which means we can be confident of where we stand with God. You have a heavenly Father who loves you so much that He gave the thing that is most precious to Him, His one and only Son, so that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Guys, the resurrection of Jesus Christ has turned cowards like Peter, James, Thomas, into martyrs because they saw Him with their own eyes. They touched Him with their own hands. The Gospel changes everything because it gives weight to our hope and it gives substance to our faith. Like in interacting with some of my own unbelieving family members, I've often told them as they tell me about the importance of faith in their life. Like you got to have faith. And I have a lot of faith. I'm just trusting God I have faith. And I'll just tell them, well, you know what? It's not faith that saves you. Faith doesn't save you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. Like you can have amazing faith in something that's really stupid, right? Or you can have just weak, wimpy, childlike faith in someone who overcame death and defeated all your enemies and won every victory and carries with His resurrection the promise of yours. If Jesus rose from the dead, we have to accept everything He said. Guys, He is risen. Let's pray. Father, I pray for everyone in this room that... Uh, they would have the kind of confidence in their life, the fearlessness of, of Peter on that first Sunday of Pentecost, the fearlessness of Paul when he stood in a synagogue and preached and was dragged outside to be stoned to death, the fearlessness of Timothy who stood against the idolaters in the city of Ephesus, and was martyred. This, the fearlessness of the saints throughout the last 2,000 years who have stood and trusted You in the midst of plague, sickness, martyrdom, 
despair, because you live, they will live also. So just in the quietness of your heart, if you're here this morning and you don't have confidence of where you stand with God or you just need to clear up any doubts, it would be crazy for you to leave this morning without doing that. And I just encourage you right now in the quietness of your heart, tell God that you know you're a sinner. Tell Him that you know you can't save yourself. And then in your own words, tell Him that you know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That He was buried. And then on the third day, He was raised. And ask God to save you. Ask Him to let that death, that substitutionary death account for your sin. And ask Jesus to be your Savior and to be your Lord. Father, as we come to a table of communion to remember the death and the resurrection of Your Son, Lord, I pray that we would celebrate it, that we would proclaim it, preach it to one another fresh this morning as we remember Jesus Christ is risen. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Let's have a little audience participation. Why don't you turn to the person next to you, people around you, and tell them, Jesus Christ died for you. And this is His body. Do this in remembrance of Him. Jesus said to a grieving sister whose brother Lazarus had died that He is the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in Him Though he is dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in him will never die. Do this in remembrance of him. Guys, the world is a scary place. If you haven't been scared in the last two years, it's probably because you've been living on a desert island somewhere with no internet access. Uh, it's designed to make us afraid. So if you've been afraid... In the words of Jesus, take courage because I've overcome the world. And He did that through His sacrificial death on your behalf and through His resurrection. That is why we can leave here this morning with victory. And I'm just going to ask you to do one thing for me this morning that you've never done before probably is to get out your phone in church. I usually tell you not to do that, but get out your phone and... Uh, Go and little scan the little thing on your seat. Uh, it's in front of your seat, the little scan thing. And let us know that you were here this morning. If you have any prayer requests, share those with us. I'd love to pray for you this week. I'm going to be at a conference for the next few days and would love to uh, pray with you with our other pastors. Uh, pray for you uh, over whatever you have going on. If you prayed to receive Christ this morning, tell me about it so I can be praying for you. If you rededicated your life, tell me about it and I can be praying for you this week. Uh, make sure you do that. I appreciate y'all coming this morning. Hope you have a wonderful week. God bless you, church. He is risen. He is risen. Amen.